Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. You ever been reading a book and you get to a spot and wonder to yourself, just what the hell was the author thinking at that moment? Are you the type of super nerd that likes all the obscure facts you can absorb into your pop culture obsessed little mind? Are you just a little curious about the behind the scenes work that went into the Ruins of Empire saga? Well, it's for you and you alone that we've got the author's commentary on my author blog at www.sagaofinsanity.com. Along with this podcast, I'm adding some new thoughts on each chapter, dredging up some scraps from the cutting room floor, discussing how the characters evolve, and whatever else pops into my tiny little mind as I record. So that's www.sagaofinsanity.com, and you can also get regular updates on the Ruins of Empire Facebook page, at Ruins of Empire, or on Twitter at, well, conveniently enough, at Ruins of Empire. Go check them out if you're so inclined, and as always, thanks for listening. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, book two of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Chapter 24 The new corporate war policy was like nothing the Brazilians had yet encountered. A post on social media from a woman in the state of Espirito Santo on July 6th of 2105 describes the scene. At dawn there were hundreds of birds in the air over the sea. They were so thick you could hardly see the sunrise between them. It was only later that we realized they were not birds at all, but corporate drones. My husband had been listening to the Lady of Fire that morning and ran outside to try to shoot some of the drones out of the air with his rifle. I collected the children and fled the city, barely escaping the missiles and bombs that the drones rained on us. When we dared to look back, there was literally nothing left of our city. Everything had been reduced to splinters and gravel. There is still no sign of my husband and I don't think I'll ever see him again. From The Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff. The first thing Vega was aware of was an all-encompassing agonizing pain. It felt like someone poured 500 pounds of molten steel right into his ribcage, and white-hot hooks tore at his chest with every short, desperate gasp. He was lying on something hard and realized that they must have left him on the battlefield. There were voices, soft whispers that seemed to come from every direction, but disappeared when he tried to focus on them. He didn't open his eyes at first. He just lay there, willing himself to give up and let the inevitable happen. He wanted to die as he always intended, not strung out on some hellish drug in a puddle of his own urine and vomit in the alley behind some seedy club, but as a warrior, honorably cut down in glorious combat. But he didn't die, no matter how long he waited. Vago opened his eyes. He wasn't on the battlefield, but inside some sort of domed cavern. A hole at the top let daylight stream in and provided just enough light to see in the dark room. He wanted to get up and figure out where he was but even the simple act of raising his head caused a thousand firecrackers of pain to explode in his chest. He groaned and set his head back down. Something moved quickly out of the corner of his eye. "'Good, you are awake,' said a feminine voice in Cytherian. A small woman walked into his view and looked down on him. Her arms and face looked like someone stretched a thin layer of skin over a human skeleton. Her eyes were sunken with heavy bags underneath, but there was a hint of youth there as well. She looked like a person who had lived a short time on this world and faced hardship during every moment of it. She held out a crude earthenware bowl in her hand. Can you drink? Vago swallowed. He could almost feel his throat cracking it was so dry. Yes, uh, 
seem. I think so, he replied with a croak. The woman carefully put the edge of the bowl to Vago's lips so he would have to lift his head as little as possible, and she tilted it until the liquid hit Vago's lips. It was lukewarm and tasted like someone took a handful of rotting weeds and filtered the juice through a dirty sock. Ferrancha. He was beginning to despise the stuff, but it was liquid, and Vago drank it down until the bowl was empty. Then he sighed. I thought the Cytherians were the only people who drink that horrible stuff. The woman lowered her eyes. It dulls the pain and stimulates healing. Of course it does, thought Vago. Ferrancha was a painkiller without the groggy after-effects. Just the opposite, in fact. It gave a man a decent jolt so that he could get a good start to his day of killing helpless people. No wonder the Cytherians loved the stuff. Would you like some more? asked the woman. Vago gulped. Zim, please. The woman brought three more bowls of Ferroncho over the next several minutes, and Vago drank every one as fast as the woman would pour it down his throat. Are you feeling better? asked the woman after the last bowl. He was. He really was. The pain in his chest was almost bearable as opposed to excruciating. He felt like he could sit up, but when he started to move, the woman put her hand on his shoulder. You need to rest. You were very badly hurt in the fight with the Cytherians. What happened? The woman took the bowl and walked to the center of the cavern where the beam of light from the ceiling illuminated the floor. There were several children in the room, and three young boys in a cluster around sacks of grain piled against the wall watched Vago. The woman carried the bowl to an older girl, who washed it off with a rag soaked in water from a nearby wooden bucket. A younger girl of about five peeked her head up from the edge of where Vega was laying, and he became aware that he was resting on a raised stone slab. He realized, with some horror, that these people probably considered it a bed. The woman returned, wiping her hands on her long, tattered dress. A Cytherian soldier stabbed you. There was a bright flash, and three of them fell. Nobody ever saw anything like it. The Cytherians retreated out of fear. It left a hole in their line, and we were able to fight our way through and escape. How did you do that? Vago shook his head as much as the pain would allow. I don't. He stopped mid-sentence as a thought occurred to him. Where's my medical regulator? A big metal thing I was wearing right here. He winced as his hand touched a white linen bandage wrapped around his chest. The woman perked up and spoke to one of the boys by the grain sacks. He got up and retrieved something from the foot of the bed. Your armor? Yes, we had to remove it to tend to your wounds. The boy held it out in front of him. Is it magic? He asked in a small voice. Vago rolled over just enough to take in the remains of the RX-5. He examined a large, charred hole where the battery was supposed to be. Damn thing had enough energy to run continuously for weeks without recharging. With that much energy being released all at once, it was a miracle that he was alive. Althea was going to be pissed. He felt a rush of panic. Without the regulator, Easter and Althea had no way of finding him. For all the rest of the team knew, he was dead. What's worse, he had almost certainly stirred up all sorts of murdering bastards inside the city. Relations were strained before he attacked the Cytherian army. If diplomatic options became non-existent, Isra could rightly determine that it was time to leave. If it was possible to get away, they were likely to leave him behind. He started to sit up and, again, the woman pushed him lightly down by the shoulder. This time, Vago got up anyway. He still felt a blinding pain over most of his body, but the Fronocha dulled it enough to allow him into a sitting position. Please, said the woman sternly, you need to rest. I need to go. I need to find my people before... A man flipped aside a cloth, 
hanging over what looked to be the only exit from the room, and stepped inside. At that moment, Vago found himself eye to eye with one of the Corsario. The skin on his lean, muscular frame was still flaked with whatever white mud or paint they used for battle, and he was smeared with a few ruddy streaks of blood as well. Four or five dreadlocks fell down around his shoulders, and he still carried his lanzafogo. He watched Vago as he crossed the room like a wild animal guarding his territory. There was something else in his face that Vago couldn't quite identify. Something familiar about him, especially around the eyes, although Vago couldn't even begin to think of why. The raider set his weapon against one of the walls. What is your name? Vago Spade. The man nodded. My name is Alexander. This is my wife, Daphne. Pleasure to meet you, said Vago, although it really wasn't. The man continued to watch him in a way that made him tense. Vago wasn't armed, which put him in a rather unpleasant position if the man decided to cut his throat. I guess I have both of you to thank for not leaving me out there, said Vago, mostly to cut the silence. Alexander stopped to stand next to the bed. The Cytherians had been behaving strangely for some time. Then you arrived. Tell me, what is the Arena planning? His tone was not harsh, nor was it inviting. It was plain and direct, as was his look. Vago sighed. I have seen many strange things since I arrived, but I know nothing about the Arena Ha or what she intends. Alexandra continued to look down on him. Then tell me why you killed the Cytherian soldiers. Tell me why you allowed us to escape. Vago sighed again and slowly pushed himself off the bed. The little girl standing nearby ran behind Daphne's dress. The other children became noticeably tense as they watched Vago get to his feet. By the time he was upright, it was only by sheer force of will that he didn't collapse. I don't know. I suppose I couldn't stand by and watch those who couldn't defend themselves be killed for fun. Alexandra's eye twitched. That was your only reason. Vago breathed deep, trying to bear the pain until it subsided. Should there be another? Alexandra started pacing in front of the bed. There are people inside Cytheria who give us aid. They tell us where we can raid before the soldiers arrive. Do you know of these people? Vago shrugged. Never met them. They do exist. They do not speak of it. Alexandra started pacing faster. His face grew more and more annoyed. You are saying that you attack the soldiers and put yourself in danger only to help us. I do not believe it. That is not the way people behave. What do you want? Vago tried taking a few shuffling steps. He had to hold on to the side of the bed, but it appeared he could move, albeit slowly, under his own power. Right now, I want to go back to my people. They are waiting for me outside the city. I want to go back to where I came from. Alexander grunted and turned his back to Vago. Go then. Leave this place and do not return. If I see you again, I will not hesitate to kill you as I would any Cytherian. Daphne had been silent during the exchange, but as Vago started to make movements toward the cloth-covered door, she went to stop him. Don't go, Vago. You are too weak. I'm fine, he replied, still bracing himself on the side of the stone slab. Tell me where the city is. I can find my way from there. Come to the Salah to eat. Daphne! snapped Alexandra. The woman's head whipped around, and she addressed her husband in an even sharper voice. You claim that people do not care for one another, but we do. We always have. That is what makes us different from the Cytherians. Do you fight so much that you forget why you fight? For all we know, Alexander replied, his treachery could be a clever act to make us trust him, so the Arenha can learn of our movements and destroy us completely. He saved your life. We can feed him before he goes on his way. 
the Arinha will only learn that we are kind. Alexandra's face contorted, as if several retorts rushed to his mouth at once. In the end, he said nothing, but just brushed past Daphna and Vega on his way out. Daphna watched him go and shook her head. I apologize for my husband. These have been hard times, and they have taken their toll on him. Vago limped forward and found that he could stand without leaning on the slab. He's right to be suspicious. He must protect his people. No one should apologize for protecting those they love. Daphna took his arm and helped steady him as he walked. You will come to the sala, yes? Eat something before you return to your people. Vago was about to say no. Every part of his brain told him that the sooner this hellhole was behind him, the better, and every moment he stayed here, the more likely he would be left behind. However, his stomach loudly voiced the opinion that one moves quicker if they have something to fill their belly. Yes, thank you, I will eat. Daphna took him by the arm and helped him limp through the door into what was, by all measure of comparison, a blast furnace. It was like some deity took a hairdryer the size of a moon, turned the power up to maximum, and aimed it at the Venetian landscape. As they stepped out into the sweltering winds, he felt Daphna's grip on his arm tighten, as if she were worried that the sudden blast of wind would knock him off his feet, and part of him was grateful for it. Vago couldn't see much through the blowing dust, sand, and haze, but the village looked little more than a collection of mud lumps dried to brick-like hardness in the blistering heat. He could just barely make out the shadows of people hurrying to get from one little dung heap to the next. Daphna pulled a hood over her head and led Vago faster through the howling winds. If she said anything, Vago couldn't hear it above the roar of the storm. His chest throbbed, and every step added a jolt of pain to it. Still, with Daphna's help, he made it through the village towards a large, looming structure in the distance. At first, it looked like just another lump, only much larger. Most of the houses were barely big enough for Vago to stand up in, but this one towered over the rest like a small mountain. As they got closer, Vago started to make out shapes. It was still made of the same dark, gritty material as every other structure in the village, but someone had tried to give this one a little architectural flair, with the rough shapes of columns on either side of an arched doorway. The whole effect reminded him of the Arenha's opulent Salah, with its glimmering white columns, looming arches, and towering spires. These people were clearly trying to ape something similar, but lacked the tools, material, or the know-how to do it any justice. Daphne helped him through the arched door, and once the wind faded into the background, he heard something that he had not heard since he arrived on Venus. Music. It wasn't terribly complex, just a series of polyrhythmic drum beats over a lilting flute melody, but it was music. Inside, Vago instinctively turned in the direction of the sound and saw three people playing hand drums, while another played along on a wooden flute. A fifth person sat cradling a rudimentary string instrument and when the flute player reached a certain point, added a delicate string tone to their melody. He saw something else that he hadn't seen since he arrived. Dancing. The musicians stood on a wooden platform that served as a stage, and there was a large group in front moving to the music. Most were children of varying ages, dancing in the wild, carefree way children do, but there were adults as well among them. Conspicuously, several couples danced together in the crowd not just dancing side by side, but holding each other and moving as one to the music. It looked strange to Vago after the Cytherian Salah. He saw lots of passion and lust there, probably more than he'd seen anywhere else. What was missing was affection. The space in front of the musicians had it in bulk. The rest of the room was crowded with people sitting on reed mats in tight circles, eating some kind of paste with their hands out of shallow brown bowls. 
The women in the groups tended to be dressed like Daphna, wearing loose, drab dresses. A few of the men, especially the older ones, were dressed similarly in long robes or togas, but an equal number squatted in circles wearing nothing but a thin strip of cloth around their waist. Daphne led him into a circle. Please sit here, Vago. I will get us something to eat. The others cleared a space for him. One of them reached for another reed mat and handed it over. Vago rolled it out on the ground and, wincing in pain, managed to sit down cross-legged among the group. Whatever they were eating, these people didn't get enough of it. They looked like refugees from some corporation internment camp. The skin on their faces hung so that he could see the shape of their skulls. A couple of boys in their early teens were only the linen loincloth, and Vago could easily count the ribs in their chest. Behind them were more children of all ages, two adult couples who huddled close together while they ate, and an older woman. They all dipped their fingers in the bowls and sucked off something that looked like oatmeal while watching Vega with a healthy amount of suspicion. The older woman spoke first. You are not Scytherian, are you? No, said Vega. I'm from Earth. Came to visit Scytheria. Things didn't go well. The woman arched an eyebrow. You came to make war? No, we came to make peace. War just happened. Not our best work. The older woman seemed satisfied with this and went back to her bowl. Someone else in the group, a girl of around eight, looked at Vago. What's Earth like? Vago thought for a moment. You have a small group of people who can take whatever they want. There's a larger group who are left to fight over the rest. So it's a lot like Venus. Earth's colder, though, with more trees. Daphne returned, handed Vago a small earthenware bowl full of the grayish paste, and sat down next to him. He did as the others were doing and dipped his fingers into the mush and brought some to his lips. It tasted like thick, salty barley porridge, only with less flavor, but he was so hungry that he quickly sucked the food from his fingers and went for more. As he ate, he looked around the cavernous room at the circles of people and caught Alexandra's eye watching him. It wasn't overtly threatening, but he clearly wanted Vago to know he was watching. Vago leaned close to Daphne. Why don't you go sit with your husband? Daphne sucked some food from her fingers. He is not happy about you, I think. Better if you two keep your distance. He mentioned Cytherians helping your people. What did he mean? Vago took another bit of porridge on his fingers. We are often told which farms to raid and when. The information comes with notes left to us, sometimes included with piles of weapons, sometimes with children. Children. The word inspired Vago to look around. Up to this moment, he just accepted what he was seeing and didn't think about it too much. Now that he looked again, he noticed that there were almost as many children here as adults. Maybe more. They laughed, played, and danced among people who could barely put enough food in their bodies to live. It was not the kind of environment that inspired a lot of breeding activity. Scytherians bring children, asked Vago. Scytherians leave babies and young children outside the gates, Daphne said, as if it were an obvious fact of life. We raise them here among us. We make them strong and teach them to fight and raid so that others may live. Vago thought back to the familiarity he felt when he first met Alexandra. Was your husband left outside Cytheria? Daphne nodded. Yes, I believe so. Why do you ask? Vago looked again at Alexandra, who still watched him from across the room, and an uncomfortable feeling made Vago shift on the mat, a strange deja vu that shot a twinge of fear down his spine. Before he could make the connection, Vago's thoughts were interrupted by some commotion on the stage. The musicians stopped playing, and three young men climbed up to the platform. Two on either side cradled the primitive firearms, and the one in the center held a sheet of parchment paper. 
That man started speaking, and everyone in the Salah quieted to listen. Our allies in Cytheria were impressed by the raid earlier today. I think there is one man to thank for that. He motioned toward Vago. Immediately, he felt every eye in the room on him. One by one, people cracked smiles, held up their hands, and started snapping their fingers. The reaction spread until the entire room sounded like hail on a wooden roof. Vago could only give a little wave and fight the tide of embarrassment rising up his neck. When the applause, such as it was, died down, the man in the center continued, Our contact was so impressed by our actions that he found two more weak points this very day where we can raid. They gave us more weapons to use against the Cytherians. I propose we organize a team to carry out this plan. The crowd started snapping their fingers again, but this time, Alexandra stood up and charged onto the stage, jostling the young man out of the way. Can nobody see what is happening here? The time of Maximiliano has come again. While Alexandra continued to harangue the crowd, Vago leaned close to Daphne again. What does he mean, the time of Maximiliano? Many, many years ago, a Cytherian fought to install his house as the reigning family of Cytheria, Daphne began. He sent people to us as friends and used us to fight their battle. When the war was over and his family controlled the Salagran, he turned on the Corsario. Are we going to let ourselves be used like this again? Alexander preached to the crowd. Just a pawn in another Cytherian game of power and influence? I say, we leave the fighting to them. Let them battle each other and wait in the shadows beyond the wall. We will pick the bones of the dead when the Cytherians destroy themselves. As you have claimed before, said the young man, waving the parchment paper in the air. But we have tried to raid without guidance from within. We run into Cytherian patrols and die quickly. Without this information, these people starve. They starve with it, Alexander motioned to the crowd. But for the first time in all of history, the Corsario have a chance to live untethered to the Cytherian plow. For the first time, our blood and pain shall serve the Corsario and not Cytheria. The heat of public debate continued, and Vago took another look around the room. There was something about these people that Vago felt connected to. They reminded him of his people on the Meriadani colony on Mars. Hard, passionate, strong people who rarely had anything to their name but four walls and a scrap of food after a hard day. But at least the people of the Meriadani colony were always free. They had little. What they had, they were able to keep for themselves. Vega started to get up, and even though the wound in his chest felt like it was on fire, he managed to get to his feet. Holding the bandage, he limped through the crowd toward the stage, where Alexandra was now in the middle of a full-blown argument with all three of the young men. Vago stopped in front of the stage. Excuse me, may I be heard? Alexandra stopped in mid-sentence and glared at Vago. What do you have to say that is of use to us? Vago took another deep breath to push down the pain. I've got an idea that will allow you to feed these people and never be under Cytherian control again. The young man with the parchment gave Vago the same suspicious look as Alexandra. How do you think we can do that? Vago held out his hand. May I see what your contacts ask of you? The man hesitated, but handed the parchment to Vago. It looked like a crudely drawn map of Cytheria. He could make out some of the more prominent landmarks, like the Arenha Salagran, the peak of Maxwell Mons, and the Modesto Wall. There were two X's at points just beyond the wall, several kilometers away from each other by Vago's estimation. Can you get in touch with this person? Vago asked. The man breathed deep, as if considering this. It is possible, but only for emergencies, as each time we put our allies in danger. But it is possible. Vago rolled up the parchment and handed it back. Then contact them. Tell them you need more places to attack. Five, at least. More, if possible. 
Are there any other Corsario villages like this one? The man looked as if he found himself on a ride he had no control of. Yes, there are many surrounding all of Cytheria. Contact them, too. Round up as many fighters as you can. Tell them that we are ready to begin a full invasion. Invasion? One of the other men on stage breathed the word, as if it were the most shocking profanity ever spoken aloud. Exactly. If Alexandra is correct, then your ally is building up to it anyway. We're just moving faster than intended. Why should we listen to you? Snapped Alexandra, glaring down at Vega. If this person intends to force us to fight their war, why do we let them? Vega motioned to the three young men. Because if we move now, we can fight this war on your terms, and attack in a way nobody will be ready for. Make contact with your ally and the surrounding villages. I will bring proof that my motivation is pure and my plan is sound. Vega started limping away from the stage towards the exit. What kind of proof? called the man with the parchment. Vega stopped at the exit of the salon and looked back. The kind that can win a war. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire. Templum Veneris, the second book of the Ruins of Empire project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. The opinions of producer Sham do not necessarily reflect those of Ruins of Empire or anything I've ever written, ever. Yes, it does. City of Geeks. Independent new media produced in Idaho.